I never really gave it much of a thought growing up as a kid. I mean, it always seemed so normal. My father was one of 11 kids in a large and loud Italian family. Now, for those that are familiar with the Italian culture, most Italian families are large and loud. In fact, my cousin Peter once noted that the Italians, when they're happy, when they like you, they yell and they raise their voice. But if they're angry with you, they don't say a word. They don't talk to you, even years. And my grandmother, my nanny, lived a couple blocks from us, a little over a mile. And when I went to visit her with my father, we'd go into the house, she'd give me a kiss in the cheek, and then say, come over here and sit, pointing to a small kitchen table next to a tiny room where her homemade pasta was drying over broomsticks between two chairs. And then it would happen. A small dish, perhaps with a raisin-filled cookie sprinkled with powdered sugar that she made earlier in the week, slipped in front of me. Another time, it would be a meatball and sauce, or gravy as it's called, from her supper the night before. Once in a while, a piece of crusty Italian bread from Rizzio's bakery down the street, drizzled with olive oil, or a sausage from her meal that night would land in front of me. Maybe a tomato sliced with fresh basil from her garden, or a peach or pear from the tree in the corner of her yard. As I said, I, I didn't give it much thought as a kid. It all seemed so normal. Then one day I went to see my guidance counselor at Quincy High, Mr. Nankin. Now he grew up with my father's older brothers, my older uncles. And he said to me once, you know, David, whenever I went over to your father's house, there was always somebody in the kitchen, sitting at the table, eating. And I wanted to say, yeah, so? And I realized that he made it sound different, like it was something that didn't happen everywhere. And as I was preparing for today's words on hospitality, in the context of a banquet in today's gospel, I realized that in the Italian culture, hospitality is the same word as mangiamo, eat. Pastor J.P. John Paul, a while ago, mentioned and noted something that struck me, that the Bible itself opens and closes with scenes of hospitality and eating. In the second chapter of Genesis, God places Adam in a garden that he created, and he tells him to cultivate the land eat off the land, and there are trees with fruit to eat. So the Bible opens up with this hospitality, God creating a garden for Adam, and, and he feeds off the garden. And then over in the 19th chapter 
of the book of Revelation at the other end, there's another story of hospitality and eating, the marriage feast of the Lamb, the culmination of all things made new, and everyone sits at the banquet, at the feast of the Lamb. And if you pay attention, you know, this theme of eating travels through Genesis to Revelation. After the Garden of Eden, we have the people of Israel and the Passover meal, a meal that's eaten quickly with bread that's unleavened because they're in a hurry, with bitter herbs to remind them of the slavery and the roasted meat of a lamb whose blood saves them from the angel of death. And as they go on from, and they escape Egypt, and they wander through the desert, God provides for them with manna and quail and water from the rock. How is that kind of funny? You know, manna is called the bread of angels. But if you look at the translation, the people get out of their tents one day, and there's this flaky stuff all around them. And manna means... What's that? <laughs> now, if I tried that in my family, in my home, and supper comes on the table, and I look at my mother and say, what's that? She'd probably give me a little motherly slap on the head, saying, starving children's in China, you eat that. Don't bother. And there are other stories of banquets, sometimes with mystery and intrigue. The book of Esther has Esther, a strong woman and hero in the Bible, one of the favorite stories and books in my family. I have a wife, two girls, the dog's female too. <laughs> so some of you know what I'm talking about. But she uses a banquet to expose the bad guy, Haman, who has a, a plot not only to kill her uncle Mordecai, but to destroy the people of Israel. And she uses a banquet to kind of lull the bad guy into complacency and tell the king about this plot. And the plot is foiled. Later on, another banquet scene, Daniel. In this banquet, Daniel, of Dan this banquet that's in the story of Daniel, King Balashar, who is the son of Nebuchadnezzar, has this huge banquet. And he invites everybody over and they take out, they've destroyed the temple, and they're taking out all the utensils, and they're eating and drinking out of the holy utensils of the temple. And suddenly, a hand comes up, if you, familiar, if you remember, and writes on the wall, and prophesies and foretells the fall of the king. Isaiah has a prophecy of a great banquet on the mountain of Zion, the mountain of Jerusalem, where food and drink will be offered to all people. The prophet Ezekiel is invited to eat the scroll that contains the message that he's going to be telling. So there's a, there's a process, there's a theme, there's a thread of eating and banqueting throughout the, the Old Testament. And even Jesus now, Jesus takes it to a new level. 
One of my favorite uh, topics, a subject that I was, uh, I, when I attended the uh, St. John's Seminary in training for the Catholic priesthood, one of the favorite subjects was the Christology course. And in it, we explored Jesus' table ministry. Maybe one reason why I liked it was because it reminded me of my grandmother's kitchen table. But the premise was this. When Jesus had something important to say, he did it many times in the context of a meal. Jesus feeds 5,000. Jesus feeds 4,000. He eats at a couple of Pharisees' houses. In chapter 14 of Mark's Gospel, he's anointed while reclining at a meal at Simon the leper's house. He eats with two disciples after walking with them on the road to Emmaus. The religious leaders are always complaining that he's eating and drinking with tax collectors, prostitutes, and sinners. In John's Gospel, his first miracle is at the wedding feast of Cana, and his disciples come to believe in him. Although it's not directly stated, and John Paul noted it to me, even the story of Zacchaeus, when he comes and stays at his house, the word stays says probably a couple of days, so I'm sure there was a meal involved with that. Now later, in the, after the resurrection, there are stories when Jesus gathers the speechless group of apostles on the shore around a breakfast of fish and bread, asking Peter, do you love me? And two out of three times, Jesus says, feed my lambs. The most important and profound meal is the Last Supper. Jesus transforms the very essence of the Passover meal from commemorating the people's, people of Israel's deliverance from the bondage of slavery in Egypt to the freedom of the promised land through the blood of a spotless lamb. And he changes the essence of that to commemorating the deliverance that's open to everyone who believes in him from the bonds of sin and death to the freedom of eternal life through the blood of the perfect, spotless lamb that he sheds on Good Friday. And he not only changes the essence, but the trajectory of the Passover meal. It's no longer just a look at the past on what God has done. It's a look to the future for he tells them before he eats, I long to eat this, but I'm not going to until I eat it again in the kingdom of heaven with you. So he has us look forward to that marriage feast, that, that wedding feast of the Lamb at the end of time when we're all gathered up to partake in that banquet in heaven. And he also takes it and makes it very present because he makes it a memory. He says, when you do this, remember me. And in the Acts of the Apostles, it's mentioned in the early part where the, where, where the church gathered regularly around the breaking of the bread, remembering him. A friend of mine once said, when you remember, you meet again. And that's what we do here each month when we gather to share the bread and the cup.
Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, you feed us, you provide for us, you are the giver of all good gifts. We thank you for bringing us together here today. We ask you to open our hearts to your word, your love, and your peace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we opened it with the idea of eating and hospitality. So let's take a look at this idea of hospitality. And we'll start with a little lightheartedness, I think. I couldn't help but notice that the word hospitality has the word hospital in it. Now, comparing the two might give us an idea of what hospitality is all about. Now, the word hospital can be defined between a relationship between a person and an institution, or an agency, or a healthcare facility, or a system. Usually, it's an experience that you don't really want. There are things in there that can cause you pain, more pain than you're already in. Relationships in the hospital are caring and supportive, but they're short-term. Don't get too close. There are professional boundaries, and just be careful of that. And it's time-limited. The insurance company tells you how long you can stay and then throws you out. Now, apologies to everybody in the hospital work out there. Nothing seriously meant by this. Hospitality, unlike a hospital, is a relationship between a person and a person. Usually, it's an experience that you really want. It's warm, relaxing. And the relationship usually is long-term and deep. And it's not time-limited. Sometimes, to the host's dismay, you can stay as long as you want. If we move towards a deeper vision of hospitality, I'd like to present it in two ways, in two parts, rather. The measure of hospitality is not found in the ambiance of the room, the plushness of the furniture, or the deep mahogany grain of the banquet table. The measure of hospitality is not in the fine linen napkins, the delicate china, or the, the shimmering silverware at each setting. The measure of the hospitality is not even found in the food, whether succulent cuts of meat or extravagant seafood or pasta that melts in your mouth. It's not in the expensive champagne or the imported wines poured into crystal goblets. The measure of hospitality is in the invitation. More than the room, more than the food, it's the invitation that is the essence of hospitality. The giver of the hospitality says to the invited, the receiver of the hospitality, you are precious to me. You are of value to me. And I want to spend some meaningful time together with you. And that's the measure of hospitality. And then the other part is, it's the mutuality of hospitality. The mutuality, the mutuality is when the invited says, yes, I'll come. You are precious to me. You are of value to me, and I want to spend some meaningful time with you. So I'll come 
In today's gospel, we have one of the most extraordinary stories of hospitality. God's generous hospitality, I would call it, in keeping with the sermon series on generosity. And you can, can you believe it? It involves eating. Not just a snack or a Burger King, but of a banquet. And if you step back and look at chapter 14, where this story is found in Luke's gospel, Jesus is telling a story of a banquet while at a banquet. It's actually the third story of a banquet. And even more fantastic, he tells the story of a banquet at a banquet in response to someone who is looking forward to the banquet of all banquets, the banquet of the kingdom of God, the heavenly banquet. Are you noticing a pattern here? And it's not that, just that. In the first banquet story that wasn't in part of today's reading, Jesus notices everybody trying to get the best seat in the house. So the first story of the banquet is Jesus reminds people, don't go for the best seat because at this banquet one guy tried to do it and somebody of great importance came and he had to take the least. So be careful of where you sit. The second one in today's gospel where he reminds the host of the banquet that it's okay, but next time, if you're going to give a banquet, give a banquet to someone who can't repay you, and your repayment will be in heaven. Now, one of the attendees gets got, caught up with all this banquet talk, and he shouts out, blessed is he who will eat in the kingdom at the banquet of the kingdom of God. And Jesus takes this opportunity to tell his third story. Now this is the story he tells, this banquet is a, a leading Pharisee's house, someone who knows the law very well. So he tells the story, a certain man, wink, 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 like you don't know who it is, invites, has a, a great banquet, invites many guests. But those who are invited give lame excuses. One just bought some land, and he's going to look at it after he buys the land. Now, who does that? Probably the guy who bought the, build, the Brooklyn Bridge. Another one, he's bought some oxen, and he's going to go try them out. Who buys something and then tries it out later? And there's a couple who are married. I just got married. You know, I want some time with my wife. Now, you could understand that, perhaps. But, you know, after you're married, who doesn't want to step out? stretch yourself and say, look at this beautiful woman I'm with. Look at this handsome man I'm with. So the, the excuses are somewhat lame. So the man is angered, and he tells the servant to go out to the streets and alleys and bring the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And then he's told that there's still plenty of room. So he sends his servants out to the country roads, the roads and the country lanes to bring those who are farther away on the very outskirts of town. The banquet in the kingdom of God that guest refers to and the banquet imagery of Jesus that he uses in the third story is well known to the people of Israel. In the 25th chapter of Isaiah, he writes, on this mountain, on the Zion, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast 
of rich food for all people, a banquet of aged wines, the best of meats, and the finest of wines. On this mountain he will destroy the shroud that veils all people, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. The sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from all faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. Isaiah prophesies that God will prepare a feast of rich food and aged wine, the best of meats and the finest wines for all people. He goes further to say that he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all people and the sheath that covers all nations. He will swallow death forever for all people and all nations. God will wipe the tears from the people's, all people's faces. The conclusion of today's parable echoes that prophecy. Every face, all nations, all people, those on the streets and in the alleys, those that are on the outskirts of the city, on the unpaved roads and dust-choked country lanes, they are invited to the banquet. This invitation rejected by those first offered is now offered to all people. And Isaiah says, with all nations. The measure of God's generosity, generous hospitality is that he has done that for all of us. That he so loved the world that he gave us his only begotten son. His generous hospitality is found in his steadfast and enduring love. It has nothing to do with what we say or we do. In the parable, we are like the crippled, the blind, the lame in the story. We are the ones lost in the streets and the alleys. The measure of God's generous hospitality is what he has done for us. The mutuality of God's generous hospitality is that we hear him say, you are precious to me. You are of value to me. And I want to spend time with you, Emmanuel, God with you. And the mutuality is that we respond with hearts of love. We say, yes, Lord, come. And like the psalmist, we pray, how precious to me are you, O God, more precious than silver or gold. With the words of St. Augustine, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I'd like to offer one last reflection on today's gospel. Most of the images in today's banquet's parable are familiar and easy to recognize. The certain man is God. The banquet is the banquet in the kingdom of God. Jesus is the invitation. Now, those that rejected it in Jesus' time were the Pharisees, the knowledgeable ones, the ones that should have known better. They were waiting for the Messiah. They knew they had the invitation. They knew it was theirs. 
All they had to do was find him. And Jesus comes forth and says, the banquet's ready. It's all set. I'm here. The invitation is here. Come. And they reject him. The ones that very sh should have known better. So, the master goes and looks for other people. And there is the blind, the lame, the poor, and the crippled. Who are those people? In Jesus' time, they were the Jews that knew they needed salvation. Remember, Matthew, or Levi, was a Jew. And he was a tax collector. He was a sinner. Many of the sinners were Jewish people who couldn't and who could keep the law anyway. They were sinners, but they knew they needed salvation. And we can associate with the blind, the lame, the crippled, for we recognize in our own brokenness, in our own sinfulness, we need salvation. Harken back to that Isaiah prophecy where the meal is prepared for us, that heavenly banquet. I put in today, so who is for us in this day that last group of people? The quiet, the silent, the mysterious, the hidden, in the outer realms of the city, on the country lanes and in the roads. I have put in the bio that I, today's bulletin, that I do work with the Department of Mental Health. I work with adults who suffer from major mental illness. I've done it for 28 years. And for me, people and families living with mental illness are among the invisible and nameless people in the second group, who live in the outskirts of society. You know, the former president of NAMI, the National Alliance on Mental Illness, once said, when somebody gets cancer, people come over with a casserole. If someone has a mental illness, nobody shows up. The stigma and fear of mental illness deprives the people who live with mental illness of a voice. Their stories are neither told nor heard, but are silenced by misconceptions and fears fueled by a lack of understanding. By losing this voice, they fade into the shadows and live in the edges of our awareness and society. And their families don't fare much better. As they watch their loved ones slip into a world of deep depression and haunting voices and suspicion, they find themselves losing touch with their own natural supports, family members, neighbors, and even their faith community. These losses, many times, are based on their fear of being judged or misunderstood, feelings of guilt, shame, or failure, that somehow this mental illness was caused by me or I was at fault. People living with mental illness issues and their families often face many closed doors that were once open, doors of friendship, opportunity, love, and acceptance. They encounter doors that are closed by society because of fear, misinformation, and prejudice. So how do we battle 
this fear, the stigma, by information. There are two types of major mental illnesses. One is emotional disorders, such as depression, anxiety, bipolar illness, post-traumatic stress disorder. And the other is a thought disorder, like schizophrenia, where there's a paranoid thinking, or people hear things or see things that other people don't. Physical diseases such as cancer, diabetes, and heart disease are diseases of the body. Physical illnesses or diseases of the body can be identified by mutant cells, blood tests, MRIs, x-rays, physical exams. Mental illnesses such as bipolar illness, depression, anxiety disorders, and schizophrenia are illnesses of the brain. Their causes are not found in blood tests, mutant cells, or x-rays. Lie in the most complex organ of the body, the brain. Physical illnesses or diseases of the body like cancer, diabetes, a broken arm or a leg, where the body breaks down, has a negative effect on the way a person's ability to interact in the world. Mental illnesses or diseases of the brain, where the brain's lines of communications break down, such as schizophrenia, or the brain is overwhelmed by emotions and can't filter them through, such as depression or bipolar illness, have a negative impact on a person's ability to relate with the world. Mental illness is no one's fault. Not the person, not the family. A person is not blamed for having cancer or diabetes. A person should not be blamed for having a mental illness. It's a disease like everyone else. So what do we do as a faith community in response to this? We have, as we mentioned earlier, a group, a Christian support group called the Open Door Ministry. We call it that in an effort to show people we can open the doors for people and families who suffer with mental health issues. We seek to open the doors and healing and love for people with mental illnesses by sharing the victorious love of Jesus Christ. And with the people, with us, a free Christian church, we have a faith community of love, acceptance, and support. Now we meet on Thursday nights in the conference room right across the way, 7, 30, 7 to 8.30, where we share prayer, support, scripture, and sometimes we're just there. All you need to do is come and talk. We do have some pamphlets out in the rotunda if you want to check it out, some information about mental health and our ministry. So what's our response? Not only to those with mental illnesses, but those other people that are out in the outskirts, hidden, lost, way out there. What is our response as a community of faith? One more banquet story. A young girl asked God to show her what heaven and hell were like. So he brought her into a cavernous banquet hall. The air was thick with the aromas of fine foods. She looked at the banquet table that stretched across the room, overflowing with food and drink. 
But the room was filled with yelling and cursing, cries of anguish and wailing voices. She looked closer at those sitting around the table and noticed they didn't have any elbows. Since they didn't have any elbows, they couldn't bend their arms and couldn't get the food into their mouths. They couldn't eat even a morsel of the sumptuous food that was in front of them. And God said, this is hell. And then he took her by the hand and led her into another cavernous banquet hall, exactly the same, the same aroma, the same long banquet table filled with the same sumptuous foods and drinks as the previous banquet hall. But there were no sounds of anguish or crying. Instead, there was laughter and singing, stories being told. She looked closer at those sitting around the table and noticed they, too, didn't have any elbows to bring the food into their mouths. But instead of yelling and cursing, they were reaching across the table and feeding each other. Smiling, the little girl, God said, this is heaven. The story of the banquet is the story of the invitation. You and I are invited. Those that feel close and those that feel far away, you have a place at the banquet table. So let us go forth from this place and feed each other with the love and joy.